Well, let's open the word of the Lord again to the epistle of James, and if you'll find chapter 1 and verse 5, we'll pick it up there and read through verse 8, James, the first chapter and verse number 5. Again, I'll be reading out of the English Standard uh, Translation, and you have, you have that translation in front of you uh, there in the hymnal rack, and if you don't have a Bible, we would be delighted for you to uh, take this one and use it as your own Bible and find James chapter 1 verse 5, the word of the Lord once again. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. In our two previous messages from this epistle, we've seen that James has an immediate concern for those to whom he has written, and he calls them his brothers in the Lord. They are all sons of God in Christ Jesus, and so they, they share uh, the title, the beloved Christian title of brother. And James is concerned about them. They are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They are grouped together in various local churches, but they are going through extreme difficulty. Most of it would fall into the category of persecution. They are being persecuted by the powers that be in the first century world. And so with brotherly love just bursting in his heart, the brother of our Lord Jesus, who authored this epistle, James, James pens this letter to help them and to encourage them in their times of being scattered and in their times of enduring persecution. And strangely enough, as he launches his letter, he tells his dear brothers in the Lord that nothing unusual is happening to them at all. They are suffering, they are facing adversity, and James would submit to them that that is the normal course for all those who follow Jesus. And we see this in verse 2, when you meet various trials. There will be a when you meet in the heart of every Christian, when you meet various kinds of trials. And then in our previous messages, we've observed how James, in a very strange way, maybe a way that even is a bit incomprehensible, it's a, it's a way that doesn't strike us as uh, the normal reaction. James says that these common difficulties that we all face are actually occasions for joy. And that's a radical message. That's a strange thing to say. But indeed, that is the Word of God. It's the Word of our Lord's very brother. When you face these trials, when they come into your life from the hand of God, they are disguised as trials, but they really are occasions for joy. And so he, he has that command there in verse 2, count it all joy when you encounter these various trials. And, and the reason that we have joy is found in verse 3. Because we know that God has sent them. They are under the command and control of Yahweh. The Lord has sent these trials to test our faith in order that endurance or steadfastness might be produced. The result of all the trials and difficulties that we count as joy is steadfastness. And then James writes, 
as this steadfastness, as this virtue of endurance begins to grow in the heart of God's people, we all will be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our trials will lead to maturity. Trials will make us more like Jesus. Trials are God's ordained mechanism to turn us into images of his beloved son. Well, we come to a new section today that really isn't new. It's connected to what he's said before. But James answers a question that we might have as we think about the purpose of these trials. He, he's mentioned wisdom. Here he mentions wisdom. And the linkage is this, how can I count it a joy? Well, James answers the question by saying you need wisdom. You need to be able to see things from God's perspective. Wisdom is seeing things the way God sees them. And that wisdom shows you that God is using trials to make you more like Christ. He's using trials to bless you. But then that gives rise to yet another question. How do we get the wisdom? If wisdom is the key to understanding what God is doing in our lives through our trials, if wisdom is the key to joy, if wisdom is the key to maturity, then, then it just simply follows that we need to know where this wisdom comes from. How do we get wisdom? Well, it's answered here in verses 5 through 8. And we might think of our passage from two perspectives. First perspective is, James is going to tell us that the source of wisdom is the Lord. But the second thing he's going to tell us is that the way God delivers the wisdom that he possesses is through prayer. Wisdom comes from God, and God gives it to us, God delivers it to us by means of prayer. And that's the simple outline of this paragraph. This is how wisdom comes from heaven into the hearts of God's people. Well, let's first consider the fact that the source of wisdom is the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The kind of wisdom we need is not the kind that's out there on the street. We need God's wisdom. In chapter 3, verse 15, the brother of our Lord James, will tell us that there is a wisdom at work in the world that is, that is demonically inspired. It's very earthly. It's very unspiritual. And it, it is a wisdom substitute. It only masquerades as wisdom. But we need another kind of wisdom. We need God's wisdom. And the only people who can truly be called wise are the ones who possess this wisdom, the wisdom that God gives. Now, God is the author of wisdom because, number one, he is wise. He is wise. He is the very fountain of all wisdom. And I can simply prove this to you by just reading some scripture to you. Listen to the testimony of the Word of God about the Lord God being the source, the fountain of all that may truly be called Wisdom. Listen to Psalm 104. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, in wisdom, you've made them all. 
Or listen to Daniel chapter 2, verse 20. Daniel answers back and says, Blessed be the name of God forever, to whom belong wisdom and might. The Lord is the source of wisdom. Think of 1 Corinthians 1.25. There the Apostle Paul says, The foolishness of God, if there could be such a thing. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. God is the source of all wisdom. And he is supremely wise, and he is the source of all wisdom because that's his nature. He is wise. He is the source of all wisdom because wisdom is his very nature. Proverbs 3.19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. Romans 11.33, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. His nature is wisdom. But even more than that, Wisdom has become embodied in the person of Jesus. You see, for Christians, wisdom is not some abstract concept. Wisdom is not some word in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Wisdom for the Christian, wisdom according to the Bible, has become embodied in a person, in the God-man, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Think about the testimony of Scripture. The prophet Isaiah, looking forward to the reign of the coming Messiah, said the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding will be upon him. And lo and behold, seven centuries later, when that messianic king was born... The gospel writer Luke records these words about him. And the child, the holy child, the Christ child, grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom. He was the embodiment of wisdom. Think of Luke 2.52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And then Jesus becomes a man. And he begins his public ministry. He goes out into public and he begins to preach and exercise the Father's will. And Mark tells us in chapter 6 of his gospel that on a Sabbath day he went to a synagogue and he began to teach. And Mark records that all who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? Every time Jesus opened his mouth, the wisdom of God came out. He was the embodiment of wisdom. And that's why Paul says to the Corinthians, and he says to the world, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He would say to the Colossian believers and to the world that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. For wisdom is a person. And we must go to that person to get it. You must go to the source. You must go to the fountain to get the wisdom that you need. Wisdom is only for those who know and fear the Lord. Wisdom is only for those who believe upon the Son of God as their Lord and their Redeemer. 
and to stay consistent with the biblical categories, the language of Scripture itself, everyone else is just a fool. The only people who are wise are the ones who in humility and in repentance look to Christ and say, He is my Savior. I turn from my sins. I embrace Him alone. I receive Him as my King. And in that moment, the wisdom of God becomes yours. And you are a wise person because you fear the Lord. And so you must go to the source to find wisdom. But then James begins to talk about the way that wisdom that we find only in Christ, how does that wisdom become the possession of God's people? How does it increase? And how does it find practical expression, especially in times of difficulty? How do we get that wisdom? Well, he says in verse 5, if we lack wisdom, let him ask. Let him ask God. Let him ask God who gives. You ask. You ask. We learn from this, this that wisdom is God's gift to give. It is God's gift that he greatly desires to grant to us. He loves to give this gift. He thoroughly delights in bestowing this gift upon his children. He is a God who is always giving wisdom to his children. And he didn't start doing that in the New Testament. He's always been a God who has given wisdom to those who seek him. Listen to the testimony of Scripture. God gave Solomon wisdom. God gave Solomon understanding beyond measure. The psalmist said in Psalm 51, in that great passage of confession that we even prayed through this morning, the psalmist David says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward parts, and you teach me wisdom. You teach me wisdom. Proverbs 2, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. And then Ephesians 1.17, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, may give each of you in Christ the spirit of wisdom. God loves to give wisdom to his people. He loves it when we ask, but we must ask. We must pray. We must pray. As we look at this, this way we get wisdom, there's a beloved simplicity about it. There, there's nothing complicated here at all. If we need wisdom, and we do, then we simply turn to the one who is wisdom and we ask for it. And so prayer is the appointed means by which God delivers wisdom to his people. But look at this word ask. Ask. What may not be apparent in our English rendering of that verb is the fact that it implies a constant and a continual asking. The idea is, is seeking after in prayer. Be praying continually. Be seeking for wisdom continually from the hand of our sovereign God. Be in prayer always about all things, but especially 
James would say, especially that you might have wisdom. Pray without reservation. Pray to the one who is the provider and the giver and the fount of all blessings, and particularly the fount of the blessing of wisdom, because he alone can give it. We have to be a people of prayer. And there's something, there's something between the lines here that I think is very provocative and very challenging. James is saying that when we're in the throes of difficulty and pain, as were his brethren who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire by persecution, James is saying the first thing we pray for when we're suffering, the first thing we should think about, the first concern should not be relief. Now, we we should pray for relief and deliverance. But it's as if in this paragraph, James is saying, when we're suffering, when we're facing adversity, when we're going uphill, when everything is against us, we go to the Lord and pray, but the first thing we pray for is not to be relieved. It, It is not deliverance. We pray for wisdom. We pray for wisdom. And that's hard to do because we want out. We want to be delivered from the jaws of the lion. We want to be delivered from the fiery furnace. We want to be delivered from the flaming darts of the enemy. We want to be delivered from physical pain or emotional pain or relational pain or anxiety or whatever may be accosting us. But James, the brother of our Lord, would say, go to your knees and pray for wisdom. And when you do, You'll get it. And you will see your pain from a heavenly perspective. And you will be able to say, I rejoice even in my afflictions because I see the hand of a sovereign God who does everything well. And so to request... Wisdom in the midst of trial is precisely what God intends for his people to do. They must pray and ask for wisdom. And then what happens when they pray? Well, that treasury of wisdom will open and God will answer. As we read this text, as we're called to pray, maybe, maybe now you're experiencing what we all experience, what I certainly have experienced, that is the reality that prayer is a hard thing to do. It is difficult to ask, isn't it? It's difficult to be praying consistently and repeatedly and faithfully. That, that seems to be such a strange problem to have, but it's a universal problem. We, we don't pray as we should. But there's help here for that. For all those who struggle to pray, there, there is help here. And in this paragraph, the brother of our Lord is showing us the character of God And as we see the character of God, especially as it relates to prayer, it is going to inflame our prayers. It is going to drive us to pray. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Here, James begins to speak of the character of God. Notice what he says. 
He teaches us here that it is the very nature of God to give. He loves to give. When we pray, we're going to our Father. And our Father is always disposed to give. Now, growing up, if you had the experience I had, you paid very careful attention to the mood of your father. You had things you wanted, and so you paid attention to the kind of day he had. He gets out of his station wagon back in the days when there were such things. And from the second floor window, you look at his face. Is he smiling or not? Has he had a good day? Has he, has he made a lot of sales? And if it's been a good day, that's probably a good time to go ask for something. But if he comes out with a frown, you dare not ask. And James would say, our Father in heaven is not like that at all. He is always in a mood to give. He does more than simply give. He always gives. He is always giving. I think of the 8th chapter of Romans. I think of that verse that we should just put on our mirrors, put on the dashboard of our car. The one who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How would he not also with Christ give us graciously all things? He's always in a giving mood. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. That's why Jesus again said in Matthew 7, in that same paragraph, if you who are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good gifts to those who simply ask him? James knows the word of his brother. And his brother said, when you ask of the Father, the Father will give. Look, at down, look down at verse 17 of this very chapter, James 1. Look at what the brother of Jesus says. This should encourage us to pray. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Paraphrase, the Lord never changes, and the Lord loves to give to his people, and the Lord delights to give wisdom to his people. And so we think about the character of God. He is a generous giver. Verse 5, the Lord gives generously to all. The bounty he has prepared for us is unrestricted. He gives all the wisdom we need. And notice James is very deliberate. He gives all the wisdom we need to all of God's people. He gives generously to all. He doesn't just make the deacons or the elders wise. He doesn't just make the Sunday school teachers or the adults wise. Anyone who knows Christ, who cries out to God for wisdom, he makes them wise. He gives generously to all. He does not discriminate in the body of Christ. He doesn't care what your educational level is. He only cares that you know and fear him. And he distributes wisdom generously to anybody who names the name of Christ. Praise his name. One scholar has written 
that when we go to the Lord in prayer, especially as we go to the Lord praying for wisdom, He gives with a selfless, total concern for us and with an exclusive preoccupation with us as if He had nothing else to do but to give and to give and to give again. He gives generously. But then James says he gives this wisdom without reproach. Again, we're seeing his character that should, should, should inflame our prayers. He, he gives generously. He's a generous God. He gives, but he gives without reproach. That's a strange phrase. What does it mean that the Lord gives without reproach? One older commentator has explained it this way. There are those who are most liberal among men. When anyone asked too often to be helped, they mention their former acts of kindness and then excuse themselves from any future responsibility to help. Let me explain that. The Lord gives in a way that's totally different than the way we typically give. Sad to say. He doesn't chide us for past conduct when he gives. He gives without reproach. He doesn't bring up past failures when we go to him in prayer. He gives without reproach. He does not answer our request grudgingly. He does not respond to our prayers out of frustration. Maybe we could put it this way. Maybe we could paraphrase it this way. When we go to the Lord in prayer, and especially when we go to the Lord praying for wisdom, He does not say, I already gave to you. And look what you did with it. Look at the way you've squandered my gifts. Look at the mess you've made with my previous blessings. And here you are asking me again to give. No, the Lord doesn't give that way. The Lord gives without reproach. He hears our prayers, every one of them, with mercy and grace. He receives our prayers, every one of them, into his infinite, infinite heart of love. He bids us freely to cast our concerns before him. He says, come and come often and come repeatedly and time and time and time again and ask. And he never tires of hearing our little voices cry out for comfort and for assistance and blessing and for mercy and wisdom. He gives and he hears our prayers without reproach. And that's good news. And that makes me want to run to him in prayer. Because he will receive me as one of his children. And his ears will be tuned to me. And he will hear me from a heart of mercy. And my request and your request for wisdom will be filled every time. Now that makes me want to pray. It makes me want to ask. But there's a condition. And you see it right before you. There's a condition for our prayers, especially our prayers for wisdom. Verse 6. Let him do his asking, let him do his praying in faith. 
with no doubting. And so we must ask for this wisdom in faith. Admittedly, this is a confusing passage to many believers, and we hope to shed some light on it and make it as simple as it truly is. What is our Lord's brother saying when he says that we must come and ask all things, and especially for wisdom, in faith without any doubting? Well, what is faith? In its most simple form, perhaps we could say that faith is a personal reliance on God. And we could expand from that simple definition. It is active trust or confidence in God. It is, in this case, confidence in His generosity. Confidence in His power to give. It is the assurance that God will give what He has promised to give. It is the act of resting upon who He is, His character. It is the act of trusting His Word, what He's declared that He would do. It is the firm hope, the certain expectation that the Lord who made this promise to begin with is the one who will keep it. And so what does a prayer in faith sound like? It might sound something like this. Lord, I need wisdom. And my Father, my Father in heaven who loves me and all those who are in His Son, I know you will give what you've said you will give. I believe. I rest my hopes in your faithfulness. My assurance is your word. I trust your fatherly affection. The hymn writer got it right, didn't he? Edward Mote, when he penned those words, when darkness fails his, rather, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. That's faith. We trust Him. We trust who He is and what He said. And notice that faith can be defined by its opposite. James says, come with faith but no doubting. So, so what is doubting? What is doubting? Well, literally, literally this word means to be divided. Without being divided. That is, without a divided opinion about the kind of God to whom we are praying. We must become convinced that He is good, that He is our Father, that He is the Lord. A doubting mind is not sure who He is. But a mind controlled by faith, a prayer controlled by faith says, I know whom I have believed. I know you're good. I know you're powerful. I know you love me because you said you did. The doubter is waving, or rather wavering, between opinions. The doubter is not convinced 
as to who God is. And even more so, James is saying the doubter is not convinced in his heart or her heart that he even wants God to help him. Yeah, that's what James is saying. Do you really want the wisdom? Do you really want God to answer that prayer? This helps us understand something that happened that the gospel writer John recorded. There was a healing of a very sick man that occurred at the pool of Bethesda. And John describes it this way. One man was there at the pool who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and he knew that he had been there already a long time, Jesus went up to this man and said, do you want to be healed? Now, of course the man did. He had been there day after day at the pool hoping hoping for a miracle. There was a, there was a myth that when the waters of the pool would bubble, the first one who jumped in would be healed. And they, they were enslaved to that myth. And every, every day he was there at the appointed time hoping someone would throw him in the water and he could be healed. Absolutely, he wanted to be healed. But Jesus said, do you want to be healed? Looking him eyeball to eyeball, do you want me to answer your prayers? Faith says, I have nowhere else to go. And I want you, Father, to give me what I'm asking for. I abandon every attempt to find it myself. I cannot accrue. I cannot gather. I cannot find the healing and the power and the wisdom I need. I have only one person to look to. And I believe that you're the one. And I want you to give me wisdom. Now that's faith. That's faith. Without faith, we are unstable. Notice how James makes this very dramatic. The one who wavers between opinions about God, about his word, about his goodness, about his love, is like, is like a wave of the sea, totally at the mercy of the wind. James calls him a double-minded man. There's that idea of division again. Uh, the uh, New Testament authority, uh, older authority, William Barclay says, one mind believes, the other mind disbelieves. And the man who doubts is a walking civil war. He trusts, but he distrusts. And the trust and the distrust is waging a war. And this is what James is saying. Unless I just abandon myself to the Lord and trust who he is and trust what he has said and want him to deliver what he has promised, then I'm like a wave at the mercy of the wind. And I am a double-minded man living in a perpetual civil war. No peace. But the man or the woman of simple faith is rock steady. The man or the woman who distrusts themselves and trusts the Lord. The man or the woman who doesn't rely on their resources but on the grace of God. That's the person who is stable in a very instable world. And so the gift of wisdom is granted to those who ask for it and who trust God to give it. It's simply asking. 
and not doubting. And when that's our prayer, we are guaranteed by the word of God that the windows of heaven will spring open and blessings will come down in such vast measures that they cannot be contained. Let us pray. Let us pray for wisdom. Are you in a trial? Are you facing adversity? Is your faith in Christ being put to the test? Then pray. And keep on praying. And before you ask for the Lord to deliver you, Ask the Lord to give you wisdom. Ask the Lord to let you see things from his perspective. That he is doing good in the midst of all the pain and the chaos. That he is causing all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Pray for wisdom. And then you'll have joy. And you will be able to count every pain and every trial and every reversal as a joy. And the joy of the Lord will be your strength. And if he calls you to bear it, you will bear it in his strength. If he brings you deliverance, it will be for his glory. But you can't lose either way. You will have the joy of the Lord. And you will express the character of Christ. And endurance will have its perfect result. And at the end of the day, you will be who you're supposed to be in Christ. A mature believer. Let us pray for wisdom. Praise his name.